Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us here this morning, that you would remind us of our identity in you, and that we would experience your power at work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. That's it for today. Two short verses. Two short verses, but in these two short verses, there's seven pieces of good news that I want us to look at. So two short verses, seven pieces of good news that I want us to look at. And the first piece of good news is that we have good news. Good news exists in a world dominated by bad news. There is good news, and we this morning have good news from a good source. We're holding it. I'm holding it. Maybe it's on your lap. Maybe it's on your phone. We have good news from a good source. That is good news for us, that in a world that seems so dark, in a world that seems so chaotic, in a world that seems so um, destructive, there is good news that exists, and this good news flows from a good source. And what I mean by that is we have God's Word, Scripture. We have the Bible available to us. We can get good news. The Bible is good news. It is God, God's good news for mankind. And it's from a good source. It's a good message from a good God. And it's reliable. You know, you, you hear good news and usually you want to you, you know if you can trust that news. Is it from a reliable source? And you can get good news from a bad source. And you can get bad news from a good source, but most often we want to know, is there, is there, am I hearing good news and can I trust what I'm hearing? So we have good news from a good source, good news in God's word from a good source. How do we know that it's a good source? We're going to read through Colossians and we'll see plenty of good news in the book of Colossians, but how do we know that we can trust it? How do we know that it's coming from a good source? A couple things that we need to think through and, and that I want to proclaim to us this morning is that the Bible is, in fact, a good source. So as we hear the good news of the Bible, we can trust what we're hearing because the Bible is a good source. The Bible is historically reliable. Now, if you dig into the history of ancient manuscripts, what you will find is that the Bible far outweighs all other ancient manuscripts. The Bible in fact, is a historically reliable book. It was written over the course of 1,500 years on three continents in three different languages with 40 diverse authors. But there's fishermen, there's doctors, there's prophets, there's tax collectors who write this book. Three different continents, three different languages over the course of 1,500 years, and there's one unified and central message, Jesus Christ. That, that God, Yahweh, exists and he created mankind in his image and we are broken and fallen by sin and God redeems us through his son, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to the Messiah and the New Testament unfolds and explains who the Messiah is, Jesus, the Christ. The Bible is incredibly reliable. If you stack it up to other ancient books, what you'll find is that Homer's Iliad, which plenty of people read for school, and people don't question whether, that's a, whether it's a reliable, real book. It's, it's fiction, it's a story, but they don't question whether the author was real, and they don't question the content that's in there. There's 643 ancient manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. 643 ancient manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Plato, the Greek philosopher, 
They have seven copies, seven original copies of Plato's work, the Greek philosopher. What do they teach you in school? They don't, they don't say, well, Plato is a questionable figure. We don't really know what he taught. They say, here's what Plato taught. Here's some things that we can learn from Plato. They have seven ancient manuscripts to go off of. The New Testament, there's over 5,000 ancient manuscripts that align. And so people who actually study ancient literature, they will say that the Bible's historically reliable as a book. It is a historically reliable piece of, of ancient literature. You can't dispute that. Nobody disputes that who actually digs into the facts. However, people don't necessarily like the message of the Bible. They don't see the good news of the Bible as good news. And so, so they'll say you can't actually disagree with the evidence of the historical reliability of the Bible. You can only agree with, disagree with your preferences of what's right, good, and true. You can't disagree that Jesus really lived if you dig in and you study history. You can't disagree that Jesus actually claimed to be God if you dig in and study history. You can't actually disagree that Jesus was crucified and was risen from the dead if you dig in and study history. You can't disagree with any of that. But you can try and figure out ways to avoid it because you don't like the message that it brings. Although it is good news when we begin to unfold it and understand it. So the first piece of good news here is that we have good news from a good source. The Bible is a credible, reliable source. The second piece, this author, Paul, is one of the 40 authors. He writes 13 books of the New Testament, and he names himself right here in verse 1, Paul. He's writing a book to the believers, to the church in Colossia, and he names himself as the author. So if this book is good news from a good source, the book as a whole, what about the book of Colossians? Well, it's part of the book as a whole, so we're saying it's good news from a good source because the Bible is reliable. But Paul, the specific writer of this passage, of this book, he is credible. Paul is a credible historical figure. Paul was smart. Some people think that, that Christianity or the Bible is for people who don't have a whole lot of intellect. It's kind of, they, they play on people who haven't been educated. Paul is not that guy. Paul is not um, like Peter, who was a fisherman, one of the disciples, one of the apostles. He writes books of the Bible, and he was, he was less intellectual, intellectually developed, and he was less trained than Paul. Um, and so people could discard Peter and like, well, he was a common fisherman who was in over his head with all these elites and intellectuals of his world. So we can disregard Peter. I don't believe that's true, but people would say that. Paul, you can't do that to Paul. Paul is smart. Paul has intellectual credibility. Paul studied under a leading rabbi in the first century named Gamaliel. This was a public figure, a known figure, a leading Jewish rabbi who Paul studied underneath. Paul possibly knew th three languages, maybe even four languages. How many do most of us know? One, maybe two, maybe a little bit of Spanglish. Um, Pig Latin, some of you may know that. I know English. I wish I knew more. Some of you probably know more than me. Good for you. Continue to learn languages. Paul knew multiple languages. He had intellectual credibility. He knew languages. He studied under a leading teacher, a leading rabbi of of the time. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And these parts of these 13 books that he wrote are translated into about 3,000 languages. 
So this isn't just some guy that we can throw off to the side. When, when he writes, Paul, this is a letter from Paul. This is Paul instructing us. We can't just cast him aside and say, well, yeah, the Bible's not really very reliable. And Paul, who knows, he was just kind of some crazy guy who used to be a Jew, became a Christian. And No, he is studied. He is smart. He has intellectual credibility. He outdebated Roman officials in a Roman world. Rome ruled the world when Paul lived, and Paul outdebated their officials. They said they could find no fault with him. They were amazed at his intellect and his, his skill in proclaiming truth and explaining the things of the world. He outdebated Jewish leaders, kind of the religious establishment, and he outdebated Greek philosophers. As we went through the book of Acts, we saw that happening over and over again. So I don't want to belabor that point. But Paul, we can't cast him aside. He is bringing us good news. He is a good source. Paul is credible. He was transformed by the Holy Spirit. He was commissioned and appointed by leaders. He was tested and proven true. I mean, ask about a person's credibility. Don't trust somebody if they've never been tested. Paul was tested. He was tested by the church leaders, tested by the Romans, tested by the Greek philosophers, tested by the Jewish leaders, and we're still reading his words 2,000 years later. The point that I want us to get from this is we ought to learn from the Apostle Paul. We ought to learn from the Apostle Paul. He's more credible than your parents, though God has given you your parents to share wisdom with you. But Paul, we, we need to go to God's word. Paul is more credible than your parents as a teacher. Paul is more credible than your professors. Your professor who has a doctorate who may be translated into two or three languages, maybe if they're lucky, if they're an incredible professor who has done an incredible dissertation and has incredible work, maybe their works will get translated into a couple different languages. Paul, almost 3,000 languages. He's credible. So he's more credible. His words are more credible than what you're going to hear at the university. His words are more credible than what you're going to hear on the radio. His words are more credible than what you're going to hear on a YouTube explanation about whatever it may be. His words are more credible than the blog that you follow. So Paul is a trusted source. We need to consider deeply what he says. And I think we need to notice that right here, the first word of the book, Paul. Who is Paul? He's a trusted source who we should sit underneath and learn from. We all learn from people, right? We don't come into this world knowing a whole lot of things. We can, we can breathe without anyone teaching us how to do that. And babies figure out how to nurse without anyone really teaching them how to do that. And they naturally dispose of the waste that comes from nursing. And no one teaches them how to do that. But how to talk, how to interact with people, that's all learned. And so we are people who continually learn. We want to learn from the Apostle Paul because he is credible. That's the first piece of good news. We have it from a good source. The second one we are saints. So look at Paul. He goes on to say, who's writing this book? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus, and so they're together writing this letter to the Colossians, to the church in Colossia. They are writing this letter together. And what does he say? Here's the second piece of good news. To the saints. He calls the church saints. He doesn't say, hey sinners, I've got some news for you. He says, Saints, think about this. Paul is addressing those who are in Christ as saints. Do you know what it takes to become a saint in the Catholic Church? Anybody? A lot. 
You have to do a lot. You have to be some kind of figure in leadership within a church. You have to die and stay dead for five years. And then after you're dead for five years, they, they, the church body will write a letter of recommendation to the Vatican and they'll review it. And then they'll, they'll search your life to see what kind of good works you did. They'll test to see if there were some miracles. After you died, if people prayed in your name, were those prayers answered? So there's some kind of miraculous thing that's attached to your name, and then they'll review that, and then the, the Pope has to check off on it, the Vatican has to check off on it, and then there's a, a mass ceremony where the Pope saints the person. What do you have to do to become a saint biblically? Trust Jesus. That's it. Paul addresses the church in Colossia as saints, now, if we're thinking that they're saints through the, common, through, through the Catholic Church tradition of saints, they're not saints. They're still alive. So how could you say saints? You have to be dead and stay dead for five years. Um, if, if he's calling them saints in the way that we often use the word, like people who do really good things, that's not the Colossians. He's writing this letter to help correct some bad things and some wrong beliefs that they had. What, what Paul is doing in this letter here is he's writing to this church to try and help them He's giving them some boundary lines. He's saying, here's how the church works. Here's what's true of God. Here's how you are to express your faith. Here's what you're not to do. Here's what you are to do. Um, it's, like, it's like he's giving boundary lines so that they know where to park. Have you ever been in a parking lot without lines? It's awful. My, the church that I grew up in, they were redoing the parking lot once, and there was one Sunday morning where the parking lot was redone, and they hadn't painted on the lines yet. When you pull up for church on a Sunday morning, there's cars everywhere. People don't know how to park without lines. In the same way, we get things out of alignment and things don't make sense and it's a chaotic mess without some structure, without some lines. So that's what Paul is doing here in the book of Colossians. He's saying, here's some things that you need to know. Here's some things that you need to be sure of. Here's where you should draw a line. Here's where you should draw the other line. Here's where you should park the car. And I'm doing this to help you know how to live as a Christian. And so he is writing to people who are getting things wrong, but he doesn't chastise them first. He doesn't write and say, hey, it's Paul. You sinners, listen up. What does he say? Saints. He reminds them of their identity in Christ. Saints, holy, set apart, chosen. What if we approached each other that way rather than calling out and beating out our sin? What if we said, Hey, St. Trevor. It might be a little bit weird. Trevor's like, don't, please don't do that. It's awkward. <laughs> but, but what if we were reminding one another of what's true? That in Christ we are set apart. We are holy. We are viewed by God as saints, not primarily sinners. We are saints who still sin, right? Let's, let's be sure of that. We still struggle with sin and we still sin. But our identity now in Christ, the good news about our identity is that we are now saints, Primarily, first and foremost, not sinners. God sees us as set apart, as holy. Not by what we've done. Not by living a great life and getting a good recommendation and getting a checkmark from the Pope and staying dead for five years and doing miracles and, well, this person lived a very moral life. No, in Jesus. Saints, not sinners. The third piece of good news, we are family. So he says, to the saints and faithful brothers... I love this identity language that Scripture always uses, that the New Testament is so, so consistent with. He says, saints, so God sees us as saints, and he says, and faithful brothers. Paul has likely never met 
the people in this church. Paul never made a trip to Colossia that we know of. Um, Colossia was in Asia Minor, and so when Paul was in Ephesus for three years planting churches, Paul was stationed in Ephesus, and people would come to him. He would train them in the gospel. They would go back to their cities and plant churches. And so Epaphras is the pastor here of, of the Colossian church. He's the pastor in this city to these people, and we'll see that next week as we continue to walk through this text. But Paul had likely never been to Colossia. He knew their pastor. Maybe that's it. But yet he calls the church brothers. Brothers and sisters. This is the identity that we have in Christ. We are made to be family. When we place our faith in Jesus, he welcomes us in and he says, you have this wide, vast, diverse, extended family. Come on in. Brothers and sisters. I was thinking about this and uh, when my wife and I got married, my sister was engaged to her fiancé, um, but he wasn't in our wedding pictures because he wasn't in the family yet. But then, um, but then he married my sister, and now he's in the family. Now he's our brother-in-law. In the same way, when we place our faith in Christ, we are in the family. We're in when we believe in Jesus Christ. That's the third piece of good news. The fourth piece of good news, we are in Christ. And this is how all of this is made possible. Look at Paul goes on, to con- he continues on, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. That's the change that, that allows us to be called saints, that allows us to be called brothers and sisters. We are in Christ. And we've hit on this the last two weeks because it's consistently in Scripture, right? Again, I don't want to belabor this point, but there it is once again. 216 references in the New Testament about being in Christ or in God or in the Lord. To be a Christian means we're in something. It doesn't mean we're following behind Jesus, trying hard to be like him in our own power. It means that he has wrapped us up in him. He's in us, we're in him. Colossians 1.27, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. We're in him, he's in us. This is the profound mystery of the gospel. This is our, our, our identity as Christians. We're in. It's like, how good is a car without gas? Not very good, right? It sits in your, in your driveway or your parking lot or wherever you live. If you're in uptown, it's a big hassle because it sits there and you can't move it. But you put gas in a car, all of a sudden it can go. It can do what it was made to do. In the same way, without Christ living in us, we are, we are wasting our purpose in our life. But having Christ in us, it's like gas in a car. All of a sudden it's able to work and function properly. Or a glove without a hand. How good is a glove without a hand in it? Pointless? Worthless? But you put a hand in it, all of a sudden it can move it. It, it can do what it was created to do. In the same way, Christ is in us. We are in him. This is the profound good news of our identity. Number five, we have grace. Paul goes on to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. But let's just look at grace for a minute. Paul often opens up his letters by using the word grace, but he does something unique here. He does something, um, I I think, theologically specific. So in the Roman and Greek world, they would often write letters and greet people with the word grace, but it would be karian. Karian, which means we wish for you, we wish good for you. 
So it's like, I'm writing you a letter, and I wish you good. I hope good comes about for you. Paul changes it from karian to charis, which means I give good to you. It's not I wish good for you. It's this passive backed off thing which the Greeks and Romans would do. Hey, I wish good for you, but I, but I have no assurance of that. Paul would write charis, I give good to you. There is good news in Jesus Christ, and in my life, I'm bringing you good as well through my actions, through my deeds. Charis, I give good to you. We have grace. We've received grace from God the Father. Charis also means unmerited favor, or it's God reaching towards you and giving you good. It's not this passive hopeful, I hope things work out well for you. It's, I've created a way for things to work out well for you. I give you good. We have grace. God is in our corner. He's on our side. He's favorable towards us. God, the creator of the universe, is favorable towards us in Jesus Christ. Number six, we have peace. Grace to you and peace. Now, this isn't peace like the world thinks of peace. I mean, I think we often think of peace as escapism, right? The world's spinning out of control. It's chaotic, and so I want to get away from that. I want to go to a cabin. I want to go to a mountain. I want to go to a lake, and just me and myself and my thoughts, and I want, to, I want to find some peace and quiet. Now, that's good. God calls us to rest. God calls us to trust in him. Sometimes we need to pull back and remove ourselves from the chaos. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in the passage. He's not saying the kind of peace where you just remove and you find a quiet, serene place away from the chaos of the world. He's, he's thinking of peace in the eyes of the Old Testament, shalom, wholeness, where we actually go and we have confidence in God so we can go into the dark places of the world and we can bring wholeness to the broken areas of the world so that people can go to Perth, Australia and bring wholeness to, to young kids being trafficked. Peace isn't, I'm not going to think about the disaster of the world, I'm going to go sit in a cabin and stare at a lake though you may need to do that for a day or two every now and then. Peace isn't that. Biblical peace isn't escapism and removing yourself. It's saying, because I have this new identity in Christ, I'm going to go and bring wholeness to a broken world that's in desperate need of peace. We have that. It's ours. God has given us wholeness in Jesus Christ. I think many of us feel broken and we still, feel, we still deal with the effects of our brokenness, but what's true of us is that we are whole in Jesus. He has made us whole. He is making us whole. Someday we will be with him when there are no more tears, suffering, pain. But he's doing that now. He has made us whole through his son, Jesus Christ. And then number seven, the seventh piece of good news, we have a father. Grace to you and peace from God, our father. We all have different experiences, either with fathers or as fathers. It's a, it's a loaded term because fatherhood in our world is, is not always a positive thing. But what we see here in Scripture is that God is a good father who operates, what, operates in the ways that we desire our fathers to. It, with God as our father, it means that we have this paternal relationship with him, not a performance-based relationship. A paternal, not a performance-based relationship. God loves us unconditionally. He, he, he loves us through Jesus Christ unconditionally. It's not about what we've done, how we've done it, who we've done it with. It, he's not like an employer who's checking our hours and our production and saying, well, you're kind of slipping on my favorite chart here. He's a father 
who loves us unconditionally. We sang about it already. We're going to sing about it in just a minute. That's who God is, and that's our relationship to him. The good news is that we have a father. We have a father who meets every need that we wish or desire our earthly fathers would have or could meet. He's a father who loves us. He's a father who cherishes us. He's a father who fights for us. He's a father who has our back. He's a father who's there for us with open arms saying, here I am, come. Come to me, son and my daughter. This is why I tell my kids often that I'm the second best dad that they'll ever have. And I think those of us who are parents, we should do that. Point your kids to God, the good father, because he far outweighs anything that you could ever be or do. The good things that, that you do for your kids, say that's just a shallow, shallow piece of what you can get in God as father. And the areas where I fall weak and where I fall short, guess what? God will never fail you in those areas. He is a good, good father. That's who he is, and that's our identity in him is as sons and daughters. So let's summarize all this and pull it all together. Two verses, seven pieces of good news. Those pieces of good news is that we have good news. We're going to dig into it this fall. We're going to hear what God has to say about us, who we are in him. We have good news. We have been made saints. God calls us saints, not sinners, but saints. Think about the difference there. Think about the profound reality that Paul addresses them as saints, and God says the same. We are family, brothers and sisters of one another. We're in Christ, not following behind him, lagging behind He's not looking back at us saying, what's wrong with you? Speed up. He says, wherever you are, I am. So let's go together. We have grace. We have God's favor. God has moved towards us in grace with favor and love. We have peace. He's bringing wholeness to our broken areas, and he's sending us out to bring wholeness to the broken areas of the world. And we have a father, one who loves us unconditionally, who's there for us, who's fighting for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf in sending your one and only son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to God the Father, that you did everything that he asked of you, that you lived the life that we couldn't, a perfect, spotless, sinless life, that you died the death that we should have, one, as a result of sin, and that you overcame sin and death in the grave, something that we can never do on our own. We thank you for this good word that you have preserved it through the centuries for us to hear from you. And I pray this fall as we open up the book of Colossians that you would minister to us, that you would speak the good news to us, that we would receive it and know it and feel it, and be ministered to by it ourselves, and that we would go out with it, bearing good news, bringing good news to a world so in desperate need of it. We pray these things in your strong and powerful name, Jesus the Christ. Amen.